I'm Kirsty, And I'm Kelsey. And it's time to hate watch with us. So this week, we are going to be hate watching Kelsey's Joy with a long-awaited segment on a little rom-com called The Big Sick. See what I did there? Wow. <laughs> so Kelsey is BYOBing this film to me tonight. We are very excited to learn more about it on the heels of rom-com education. And then next, we are going to be coming to a long-awaited segment, at least for the two of us. And we are going to hate watch all of our feelings as Kelsey and I finally get to unpack all three seasons of Jane the Virgin, particularly season three. Get so, so hyped, guys. We literally have been hyped for this for like months. So I'm really excited to be here. We've got some really good stuff on the list to talk about. So if you like Jane the Virgin as much as we do, you are going to have a lovely time. And if you're looking for a hate watch, this actually isn't your podcast this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're bringing you literally nothing that our description tells you we're bringing. Unless you just want to hate watch Kelsey's Joy and hate watch my feelings. Those are the right. two things we're offering you to hate watch this week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we dive in? Yeah, I'm really excited to hate watch your Joy, Kels. That's actually why I'm here. So tell me about the big sick. All right. So, firstly, Kirsty tried really hard to watch The Big Sick and couldn't manage it in time, but we really tried to bring you the full experience. I literally had one job in the last two weeks, and it was <laughs> to find some way to watch The Big Sick. And guess who was not capable of that? It's all right. It's okay. <sighs> so It's tough out there. As Mel or Sue may say, I have the hard job this week. <laughs> I have to explain the content. <laughs> so the Cliff Notes version of The Big Sick. This is a true story written by, I'm going to get his name right, Kumel, something like that. That's how they've been pronouncing it in the movie, so that's what I'm going to go with. Kumel? Yeah. Kumel and his wife wrote this cute little great rom-com. He plays himself as a stand-up comedian wannabe, kind of, also Uber driver, who <laughs> is an immigrant from Pakistan, and he meets a grad student who is a white girl named Emily, and they end up dating and falling in love and getting all cutesy. Meanwhile, his mom is bringing him different Pakistani women to marry, because arranged marriage is a real deal. So he kind of keeps this away from Emily, and then she finds out and is not super psyched, and then they break up, and mm -hmm. then she ends up in a coma. Super casual. And this all happens pretty quick, so like in the first 30, 45 minutes. And then the half of the lead story is useless for the, almost the whole rest of the movie, which is interesting, because then it brings in this whole other element where he ends up meeting her parents and sort of begrudgingly forces a bond with them when they're not necessarily super happy to see him. So he kind of stays by her side through the whole thing and bonds with her parents. And then there's a whole thing at the end where once they figure out what was wrong with her and she gets better, he tries to win her back. Hmm. And it's very sweet. It was interesting, especially for me, to watch something that I knew the ending of. <laughs> Which... It's okay because it's a rom-com, so you kind of know anyway. Right. But, it's baked into the format. Right. But it was still interesting with a tendency to avert my eyes from spoilers that I did know the end of this. I mean, to the point about format, though, I don't think, like, 
couple ends up married counts as a spoiler. No, no. And, like, that comes from my philosophy about spoilers, which I won't get into, but, like, that feels minor. It is minor. I think at the same time, I could have seen it, if I didn't know that it was a true story, I could have seen it as maybe a twisted 500 Days of Summer type situation where she ends up, like, dying at the end, and then he learns all these things about life from her parents or whatever, and then meets some other girl. Yeah, it is interesting. So Kumail, over the weekend, did this, like, personal challenge where he attempted to respond to every single person on Twitter who was tweeting about the movie. Yeah. Which is, like, admirable. Uh, At the time that he started, there were over 250,000 tweets, and I'm sure as he went, there were more. But at any rate, he responded to this one person who said that they didn't realize until after the film that it was based on a true story. And Kumail responded and said, I honestly think it's better that way, um, at least for the first viewing. Which I think is really interesting to your point that, like, if you didn't know that it was based on real life, it could have gone a completely different way. Yeah. Or, like, your read of it could have. Right. And to your point about the (laughs) Twitter action that he's been on, he's out of control and it's great and from my nerdy little social side any brand who wants to engage with people on the internet should just look at his feed uh, because it's a lot of work and you can tell that he really you know like loves this movie and it's owning it and really wants it to succeed just based on the amount of time that he's putting into twitter (laughs) like i tweeted about the movie i didn't i think i tagged it but i didn't tag him or anything and he favored it within the time that i was in the movie theater yeah. And I was like, why? But and it's why? extremely genuine. I mean, I think yeah, there are social channels that I have engaged with where that speed of response or like the level of response that he's giving doesn't feel genuine. It's usually a lot of like stock responses and stuff like, glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for tweeting. Yeah. Like, always happy to meet our fans, like that kind of fan servicey stuff. And his his responses have shown, like, a very real desire to engage with the people who are watching this film. And I wonder how much of that, not to say that he's not a fan-driven guy, like, I get the feeling that he's pretty accessible. But I also wonder how much of that is driven by the fact that it is his story and that he and his wife wrote it together. Yeah, I'm sure that is a big part of it. And I also think when they made this movie, I don't think they were expecting the full distribution that it's now received. Right, right. Because it started off very small- It had some good buzz behind it, but it did have a pretty limited release up until about a week ago. Right. As of this recording, which is not when you're listening to it, when it'll have been out for weeks. But so a couple of notes I have in general. He's a stand-up. And I know we talked about this when we talked about other rom-coms of these are modern times. (laughs) During rom-com vacation, his stand-up was actually funny. Oh, that's good. And I don't know if that's partly because he's playing himself, right? And he is funny, but... There's times when you can tell he's supposed to look amateur and there's times towards the end where he's supposed to have become a bit more established. Mm-hmm. And you can you can detect that, but it is still... When you know he's supposed to be funny, he's actually funny, which is nice. <laughs> it's nice that even if they didn't nail that all the time, it's nice that they tried to delineate it for you so that you're not in the audience like, what are you going for? What do you think of yourself right now? Yeah, it was very clear when there was like a struggling point versus kind of getting in the rhythm of it. Yeah. I noted that it falls into the kind of gentle comedy area (laughs) that we love so much. It was surprisingly a nice mix, especially coming from something that had Judd Apatow's name attached to it. It was very sweet. It was 
not super crude. It had funny crude moments, but nothing that was super gratuitous. Do you suppose that's because Judd Apatow was only directing? He didn't actually write it? He did not direct either. He only produced. Oh, even better. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is part of it. Of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Less creative control. <laughs> <laughs> Judd Apatow is really best when he doesn't have any control. Right. There was a really great meltdown scene uh, towards the end of the movie where he's upset and he goes to a fast food restaurant and gets in the drive through and he asks for a burger with four slices of cheese on it. And the guy's like, uh, I don't think we can do that. And he's like, it's just you and me. Why can't you take four slices of cheese and put them on one burger? All I want is four slices of cheese on one burger. And he gets like so upset in the funniest way. And then he throws the trash <laughs> across the drive-thru and then he's like no I'm sorry I'm sorry and he like starts picking up the trash and it's such a good embodiment of the exact type of comfy that I'm here for yeah you know what podcast I really want Kelsey what I want a podcast of you reenacting movies (laughs) like full feature length movies is this like when Andy Dwyer reenacts movies during the king it's exactly like that Guys, we will bring you that very special episode if you tweet us and ask for it. <laughs> you can even request the movie. Oh my god. <laughs> There's so much potential there. I was definitely meant to be a voice actor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that this just raised the stakes for the Game of Thrones Fantasy League. Oh no. <laughs> surprise about this movie is that I didn't hate Ray Romano. Yeah. I know you want to talk about that because you have a pure hatred for so Ray Romano. So honestly, like, so <laughs> Ray Romano, like, don't we all? Ray Romano and I have some beef, y'all. Uh, I think this might have come up before, but I just want to like lay it out straight for you so that there's nothing left unsaid. Ray Romano and I happen to have some beef. And so I didn't know that he was in this film until last night, which by the time you hear this will have been weeks ago. But I happened to come across a tweet that was a picture of Kumail and Ray sitting at a table chit-chatting, and I can't remember what the tweet said, but I had it in my mind, and this just goes to show what an incredible job I can do to keep any information about pop culture from coming into my world. I thought that it was like a very special scene. You know, like, Ray Romano just shows up for, like, one very special chat at some point. I did not realize he was top billing. Yeah. Yeah. So that fucker has, like, a a full speaking role in this film as Mm -hmm. the father of Kumail's future wife. Yeah. Slash the chick in a coma, Emily. So... But it kind of works for him. So I... I wanted to see the whole thing because I really wanted to understand Ray Romano in this film. I wasn't able That's to. It's not a line you hear every day. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I really just wanted to understand Ray Romano. Uh, what makes Ray Romano tick? <laughs> if anyone out there is willing to do a sociological study of Ray Romano and like send that to me, publish it in the public domain, please. We we will do some in-kind sponsorship for it on this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So uh, here's the thing about Sir Raymond Romano. Um, he is just a squirrel nut. Like, what the fuck is wrong with him? He's so squirrely. And I thought that that was just like a thing that he was doing in Everybody Loves Raymond. And then I thought it was like a very affected thing for his comedy because I feel like that was a thing in like the 90s. But no, he's even squirrelier in person. He's so fucking cagey. And like, fine, awkward people are totally fine. But as I said to you earlier tonight, how can someone so famous and so professional be so inarticulate? Like, he's not new. He's not new. But... But the thing I resented the most is that in the clips that I was able to find, he made me laugh twice. Yeah, he was because funny. He's the, and I said this to Kelsey earlier tonight, too. Like, watching especially, like, the clips and the interviews side by side, it's clear to me where his talent lies and, like, what he has to offer. And it turns out, I'm going to say something you're not ready for, Kelsey. It turns out he is incredibly talented. Like, he has a beat that he does well. And the thing that really seals it for me, which I resent, is that he has such a dry sense of humor. And that Mm -hmm. is how he's written in this film. Like, they definitely played to his strengths. And that's a type of comedy that's incredibly difficult to pull off. And he does it so effectively. Yes, he does. And it's rude. It's rude. I know. I truly thought I could go through this whole world just believing that Everybody Loves Raymond was a sole representation of his career, and I could just be angry at him forever. I'm not saying I'm not still angry with him. I'm just resentful that he actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah, we all are. We all feel (laughs) personally violated. (laughs) The sneaky, sneaky humor of Ray Romano. (laughs) Um, So regardless of Ray Romano, I did have one gripe or thought uh, that didn't sit right with me with this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was that there was something, and I can't tell if it was something strange about the pacing or the editing Uh that made it weird, but they sort of hurry through the building the romance part of this story, right? Because they have to get to the comma part. Well, that's such a rom-com thing, though. Right. I can't remember which category of rom-coms we talked about this in, but it might have been the Badlands, maybe, where... It was like, because of the format, everybody knows they're about to see a relationship story. So building the relationship is taken for granted because as the audience, you're like, well, duh, they're going to care about each other. So whatever. Right. And I don't know if it's that I didn't get a sense of how long they'd been together before their fight Mm. or what, but she doesn't end up coming, Emily, that is, doesn't end up coming off particularly likable to me when they get in their fight. Yeah, she gets super angry when she finds out that he may or may not be kind of stuck between being with her or losing his family because they'll basically disown him if he doesn't follow through with an arranged marriage. Yep. And she gets super upset and, you know, wants to break up with him because of that. And it seems... I don't know if disproportionate is the right word, but it seems like she's not super understanding of the fact that he's in this position. Right. And she doesn't end up forgiving him very easily either. So is the point that if you had known how long they'd been together, you would have a better sense of like the magnitude of that secret that he's keeping from her and therefore would have like a better way to scale her response? That and his insistence on staying 
kind of by her side the whole time that she's in the coma would feel a little bit more justified. Yeah, yeah. So that's my only gripe. It does not ruin the movie for me in any way. The other question I have, given that that is a plot hole, and this was a question no matter what, but how did they resolve that part of the plot with his family? It's actually one of my favorite parts in the movie. They basically stop inviting him to dinner because they have a weekly dinner or some sort of a consistent dinner. Yep. And they stop inviting him once he does tell them about her. And he just shows up himself one day and is like, so you can kick me out of the family, but I'm not going to let you. (laughs) And so he just sits down and he's like, so why don't I have a plate? Where's my food? And he just starts taking it. He's like, all right, I don't need a plate. So he kind of just forces himself to stay a part of the family. And it's very sweet. And he ends up moving to New York towards the end of it. And he hasn't really been talking to his parents and they drive up to his house as he's leaving and his dad gets out of the car because his mom won't look at him, right? But he has a Tupperware of food Mm -hmm. that she made for him. So it's still like, it's funny, it's different, and it ends up being resolved in a nice way. Like a good rom-com should. So given that that's your complaint, that your complaint is Emily's response to all of this, like, do you feel like the resolution of that plot line then justifies the way they handled her treatment, Emily's treatment? Um, I don't know. I I just don't... (laughs) I have issues with her. I just don't think she was portrayed the way I wanted her to be portrayed. Yeah, no, that's fair. Which isn't fair because she's she's based on a real person, so I can't be that guy, but... (laughs) (laughs) I have a thought on that, actually, but the only reason I'm pressing you on it is just because, like, that's a pretty significant secret to have kept from you. And I mean, granted, I'm only getting this from an edited clip from the trailer. So it's not even the full sequence of that fight scene. But she does say in that sequence, like, can you imagine a world where we're together? And like, if that's what the whole fight is predicated on, that's a fair question and like a fair reason to have a disproportionate response. It is, but the movie doesn't build the relationship in a way to tell me that they've been dating for more than two weeks. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. So the issue is that the relationship is not developed to the point that she should care enough. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's just me (laughs) not watching it correctly, but... Well, I mean, I had that problem in multiple rom-coms that I watched where, again, there was like a giant conflict because that's part of the format and I didn't care because we hadn't developed the relationship. Like, we talk about all the time on this show, like, you have to do the work, whether or not you feel like you have the time. Right. And I think part of it was that they were trying to sort of subvert the whole rom-com genre by saying, you think it's just about this couple, and then you find out halfway through the movie that it's actually going to be about him and her parents in their own little weird rom-com of, like, future son-in-law. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, because I do think it's kind of a bold move to have a rom-com that's about the couple and then to take one person out of the couple for the entire film. Right. It's not the only movie that's, like, done that, where they remove a protagonist for the entire movie, but it's a bold choice either way. Yes. It ends up working really well because I think he learns a lot about them, they learn a lot about him, and they sort of do a lot of the work for Emily in her place, almost, <laughs> in enough. terms of, like, understanding where he's coming from. Yeah. Which is interesting. And then... They sort of advocate for him once she's back and better and all that. And they sort of say, like, well, mm-hmm. why are you so mad at him? And they knew all along, they'd, you know, they'd been informed. <laughs> but um, they end up being his advocate almost by the end of it. Right. 
Interesting. Yeah. And so the other thing that I want to touch on that'll sort of transition us over to our next topic is that this story and the other story we're going to talk to are talk to talk about <laughs> talk to. I would love to talk Dude, to. If I could talk to Jane the Virgin. Hot damn. Right. Unfortunately, we won't be doing that. But <laughs> story that we are going to be talking about. Both of these stories are not about white men. <laughs> not solely, at least. Right. And that's noteworthy for a few reasons, but especially in the genres that they're working with, it's noteworthy. And it's, I think it's partially why these stories both feel so fresh. Yep. Is because they, they are. (laughs) (laughs) They are, quite literally, in the landscape we live in, they are. Yeah. And it's nice to see, and I think it's kind of breathing new life into a format that's been over the same things so many times like we've been through the badlands of rom-coms we heard the same (laughs) jokes and this was so refreshing to see something that i thought was hilarious i was laughing out loud and it was new it wasn't the same material that i've heard before and it wasn't even the same it was some of the same sort of cliched jokes about being you know an immigrant Uh and coming from that type of a family but it was a lot that i hadn't heard well, like, I really appreciate the 9-11 scene. There's mm-hmm. a scene where Kumail comes and sits down in the cafeteria with her parents, and Ray Romano is like, so, like, 9-11, I haven't gotten to talk to people about it. And he's like, you've never talked to people about 9-11. <laughs> and the whole point is, like, as a white dude, Ray Romano thinks that he's, like, doing something insightful by trying to speak to a Pakistani man about 9-11. And then Kamal goes and makes a joke like, yeah, it was a real tragedy. We lost 19 of our best men that day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it doesn't go over well. Um, and it's like, it's funny because I think I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to give a white person or any number of white people like a cookie for trying to do anything racially intelligent. But I appreciate, in terms of representation, seeing that kind of interaction play out because I think white fragility is real. And I think, like, it's decent practice for your fiction to show white people being ignorant. Yeah. Because it it was non-threatening. Like, it's funny. It's light. And then Kumail makes a bad joke about it and everyone's uncomfortable. And, like, Trevor Noah talks about this all the time. Like, the way that you can use comedy to directly make fun of white people and white fragility and racial ignorance, but do it in a way that's, like, friendly enough that people come along for the journey with you and it's not alienating. Yeah, and there was even a, mo- a moment when I was seeing it in the theater where there was a joke about his parents and his parents want him to be lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be lawyers, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> they want him to be as many lawyers as possible. <laughs> True. They want him to be a lawyer, and it w- there's sort of a running gag about that, but there was a joke about that, and it was towards the beginning of the movie, and... I was in Cambridge, right? So it, not the most diverse no. <laughs> area in the world, sure. But one group of people in that theater laughed so hard <laughs> at that joke and no one else did. And I was so glad that they don't try to cater to, to the ignorant white folk. In yeah. the like they were giving someone who could actually relate to that a joke that was really funny. Right. And, and I don't know if that's wrong to say, but. I don't think so. That's what I think is important is, I mean, to your point about having heard all the same jokes over and over again, and to a conversation that we will get to in various forms tonight, it does bring a level of depth 
that all white stories don't have because that's not a tension that we have in our life, you know? And not just that example in particular, but anything really, like, we're a fairly homogenous group, you know? And, like, the jokes that we make in pop culture are fairly homogenous and whatever. And so anytime you bring in someone with a different background and a different perspective and a different voice, you're going to get new jokes and new situations and new tensions to explore. And that's a good practice to be in. Like, it's just good practice as a society. And, you know, we had this whole conversation, was it last week, about fiction as a proxy for having hard conversations as a society? Mm -hmm. This is how you do it. You just have to normalize the fact that these people have different experiences and that sometimes those worlds collide. Yeah, I actually had almost the same thing written down about normalizing. Yeah. Uh, Because specifically, if you're working in the format of a rom-com, and then adding in these elements, it's almost normalizing by using all the familiar beats and tropes, yep. but with different material. It's starting to, you know, work on all different levels and make that something that's not so noteworthy that we are even going to talk about it maybe someday. Right, right. Or at least, like, if we talk about it, it's in a way that is more sympathetic. And I don't know, like, I'm like having a hard time not saying something cheesy. But allows allows people to hear the feedback that's hidden within that joke or that story. Right. Right, because narrative is a form of feedback loop. And so it's mm-hmm. at least allowing people to hear the experience that comes behind that joke in a way that we maybe don't do when we try to sit down and have, like, serious discussions about lived experience, whether that be, like, race or gender or socioeconomic or whatever. Right. And I think this could, I know I was talking to you earlier a little bit, but this story or Jane the Virgin story, we've seen them as dramas, right? We've seen them as like serious narratives that... Well, like drama as in like serious fiction. Like this is a real story. Right. And the fact that it's played just as lightly as every other (laughs) rom-com has something to it that I appreciate. For sure. I feel like Other than the fact that it's his real life story and he and his wife wrote it together and he and his wife are very cute with each other and very cute about their story. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's an accident that they chose rom-com. Like, Mm -mm. as we've said, every choice made is intentional, right? And so they could have made a comedy without it being the exact tropes of a rom-com. They could have made it a little bit more serious and still had elements of comedy to honor the fact that Kumail is a comedian. There are things that they could have done to make this a different type of story. I think the fact that it is a rom-com makes it a different type of delivery mechanism for the bigger, broader story that's behind it and for the interpretation of the audience. Yeah, and I actually have a quote, which is weird of me, but I have a quote (laughs) from the director, who's Michael Showalter, who did What Hot American Summer and stuff like that. But it was about the rom-com format, and he said it's only a cliche if you don't know why you're doing it. Ooh, Mm-hmm. You like that? That's good. I know. I kind of want to put it on my cubicle at work. I feel like it applies to the work that I do. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super real. And I feel like you could take that and copy and paste it in place of the titles of every single film in the Badlands. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, at this point, you could probably copy and paste it on anything that feels like it's prestige TV. True that. <laughs> like, House of Cards, if you're out there, I have a quote for you. <laughs> <laughs> My dear friends at HBO, I know you have a new project underway. I oh, have a quote for Lord. you to consider. 
Dear Lord. <laughs> Hate Watch, we are not ready for that. <laughs> so speaking of television that's prestigious to us, <laughs> should we move on to our favorite show of 2017? I think we should. And I'm going to challenge you on that and say favorite show of all time. <gasps> Yikes. Well, it's tied in number one for me. Okay. All right. I'll give but you that. it's tied. Yeah. But it, yeah, I, I said this before. I'll say it again forever. It is at this point, literally a pillar upon which I have built my life. <laughs> um, and that show is Jane the Virgin. So this is a CW show. It's three seasons in, so it must have aired originally in 2014. Mm-hmm. 13. Mm-hmm. Somewhere, 13. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. 13. Time is meaningless. So this show has been literally an evolving process for us. And I might even argue for like people who've been watching it even from the beginning, just based on the way critics have talked about it since the beginning. I would even argue that the show has been a journey for itself. So like there's a lot here. And before I go over premise, I'm going to warn all of you. There's a lot here. Like when I said at the beginning that you guys are going to hate watch our feelings, I was not kidding. (laughs) You were not. I was not. We have literally spent a week, if not more, trying to work out an outline that is podcast friendly. And I'm at a point where I am desperate for people to start writing books about this television show. Like, I could just consume spinoff content, not like spinoff as in fiction, but like books, articles, podcasts, you name it, about this (laughs) show indefinitely. Yes. (laughs) So all of that said, this is a CW show, and it is about Jane Villanueva, who is, she's what, 22, 23 when the show starts? Yeah. She's young, is the point. She's a young woman, and she is a devout Catholic, and the first thing we learn about Jane is that one of the most important things in life for her is to remain a virgin until marriage. Um, That is actually how we were introduced to the series. And through a lot of human error, Jane becomes pregnant from her gynecologist doing an accidental insemination that was meant for someone else. And then the next three seasons are Jane's journey through unexpectedly becoming a mother, the boyfriend who she was very much in love with and became engaged to and, spoiler alert, later married to the father of the child that she ended up pregnant with, her and her mother, and then a long web of relationships out from there. And then on top of all of that, as if that wasn't enough storyline for you, this is all centered around the hotel that she works in and her baby daddy owns. And a series of like drug cartel mysteries and murder mysteries that happen within the hotel. And each of those mysteries are tied to different characters. Um, and eventually have very specific outcomes for certain characters. So good job. That's like, thank you. That's like the 30,000 foot view of this show. You did really good controlling yourself there. Thank you. It was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm holding a pen in my hands and I've been nervously twisting it because I don't even know what to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and <laughs> as I said, like, this is a really dense show. Like, this show does more storytelling than any fictional device I have ever seen. There is And it does so, it so well. So, it 
effectively. And we've used this show as an example like a million times on this podcast. So you guys have already heard us talk about the use of the narrator. You've heard us talk about certain relationships between individual characters. Like, you've heard bits and pieces about this. But we have not even begun to scratch the surface of what the show has to offer. And we won't tonight either. It's true. So you probably first heard us talk about Jane the Virgin if you have listened to our first episode, which probably three of you have. That's all right. <laughs> we appreciate you. Yes. When we did Pilot Palooza and we basically took a bunch of shows that critics and podcasters said were good and put them in a hat and watched them at random. And this was one of them that we both threw in the hat, I believe. And yeah. I think... Both of us had some misconceptions about what it was, and neither mm -hmm. of us felt immediately compelled to watch all of it. No, not even close. And this show, this show was in its second season at the time that we did Pilot Palooza. So it had like a little bit of time under its belt and had started to build some recognition. But at the time, like... It was in its third season, Kirsty. No, it wasn't. The third season yes. hadn't started yet. It started in September, and we watched it in December. I feel like that's not possible because I was reading Catherine Recaps after. Kirsty. I'm not convinced. <laughs> you don't have cable. <laughs> you don't know how television works. <laughs> don't tell me anything about my life. You don't know me. <laughs> okay. Time is meaningless. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the show was in its third season. <laughs> If we want to get all technical here. <laughs> uh, so the show had had a little bit of time under its belt, and there had started to be, like, a critical conversation about it. But because we live in a time of spoiler culture, the critical conversation was ignoring most of the things this show had to offer and was only talking about a couple of very specific things, like, namely, again, spoiler alert, that Jane loses her virginity. And mm -hmm. all of those conversations were just reinforcing for me the things that I believed I was not going to like about the show. Yeah, so my misconceptions going into this show from when it first started in 2013, right, were yeah. I thought it was about, like, teen pregnancy. Yep. I thought it was a high school story. I yep. thought it was going to be very religious and preachy and conservative. Mm -hmm. And it was on the CW, so it didn't have a lot going for it, in my opinion, at that time. See, I didn't think it was going to be conservative. I thought it was going to use religion as a punchline. Like, I sure. thought it was going to use a caricature of religion to be, essentially, like you're saying, to, like, be a high school comedy about this kid and her baby and also, like, jokey religion. Yeah. And if I thought it was going like, to be, I like... She has a boyfriend and a baby. Can she do it all? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's and not that at all. It is. It's not even close. It's extremely funny. It's extremely dry and quick and witty. And the storytelling is so strong and so rich and so and deep. And smart. And so smart and intuitive and insightful. And it has so much to say about the world that all of us live in. And it treats every single thing that it brings into the show with so much respect. So it treats religion with respect. It treats people who are not religious with respect. It treats, you know, like, it treats every community that it brings into the show with absolute respect. I've never in my life had any sympathy towards people who have strong religious beliefs, sorry, <laughs> until I watched the show. It does a really good job of, like, of telling a story about religion that is... Doesn't make her look unintelligent. 
it's, yeah, it's extremely sensitive to both people who have deep faith and people who have no faith at all. And that's a really difficult thing to do, especially in these are modern times where, mm-hmm. like, everything is divisive. Literally everything. Yeah. So one thing, I know we were talking about things that these stories have normalized in the world, right? Mm-hmm. In their world. And the thing that this show does the most, I don't know if you mentioned this in your wonderful synopsis or not, <laughs> is that she is, what, a first, second generation Second generation. Yeah. And so she lives with her grandma. Her grandmother immigrated from Venezuela and her mother Mm -hmm. was born here. And so Jane is second generation. Yeah. And so they do a very effective job of normalizing just speaking Spanish conversationally. Mm -hmm. And you don't notice it until you get to the wedding episode. You, You literally don't notice it until someone who doesn't speak Spanish, which is Michael, who's Jane's fiance at the time, speaks Spanish. Well, husband at the time. I suppose. In the process, really. Um, <laughs> in the process. But his vows, part of his vows are in Spanish. As which a was like gesture. one of the most powerful romantic things I have ever seen. Like, you want to talk about a romantic gesture? Mm-hmm. The fact that Michael bothered to learn his vows in Spanish for Jane, I, I sobbed. I weeped. Yes, like uncontrollably. Ugh, and then they have flashback scenes to Alba teaching Ugh. him the vows in Spanish and then practicing Ugh. together and her speaking to him in English. And she My understands heart. English and speaks well, but she doesn't speak English to anybody who speaks Spanish because it's not her native language. But she speaks English to him, and so her trying to speak to him and him trying to speak Spanish to her, mm-hmm. it's like... My heart just breaks so much for all of that. It's so wonderful. It's beautiful. Yeah, so that was a moment where I didn't realize they were even doing something so well until they highlighted it in a very sweet and wonderful way. Yeah. And then I realized, like, oh, that's what they've been getting at this whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't even think of more examples off the top of my head, but there are so extremely many things in this show where that happens, where, like, there's a poignant moment and suddenly you're like, oh, they've been telling that part of the story this whole time. And that's why I have gotten to this moment. (laughs) It's true. One thing about this show that seems unique to me, out of many things, but one thing is that we see a lot of, like I said, I thought this was a high school show, right? (laughs) We see a lot of high school shows, high school dramas, high school comedies, whatever. We see a lot of family shows, like sitcom-y shows. We see a lot of 30-something shows, like Friends, I would almost put in the 30-something group. How I Met Your Mother's 30-something group. Like old millennials. And it's it's like late millennials, and it's like still trying to find love, right? Yeah, yeah. And you never get a story, and this is... It's relatable because of our age, but yeah. you never get a story about, like, a mid-twenties post-college age group, and you don't get one about someone who's already been dating the same guy for, like, six years. Yeah. Right? And it hasn't been yeah. that long. But you don't get a story about someone who's kind of settled. Yeah. And is you happy with it. You get stories about people who are settled and happy. You don't get stories about people who are excited to move on to being settled, but not, like, not in a really gross, like, heteronormative way. I think there's, like, the heteronormative, like, gender performative way of being settled, and then I think there's, like, two people who commit to each other settled. So you don't see that. And then you also don't see people who both enjoy parenthood and are scared of parenthood. Like, 
in this day and age, you really get stories about people who, like, have kids and like them, but also want to be salty about it. But you don't get a lot of stories about people who, like, genuinely love parenthood and also genuinely are scared of parenthood. And are, like, understandably salty. <laughs> right. But, like, appropriately like, like, salty. Like, yeah, don't like, hate everyone their has child moments, salty. Right. But, like... <laughs> but why did you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting to see, and it's felt relatable, like... Jane and Michael getting married is not that different than, you know, you and your husband getting married a year ago, right? Oh my god, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> oh no, don't cry. <laughs> I'm not gonna cry. That's just like a huge compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you are gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. <laughs> don't be rude. <laughs> Um, I mean, something, I don't know if this is where you were going with this, so, like, feel free to, like, get back on course after I'm done talking, but one thing that I really appreciate about this show in all of the romantic variants, and there are a lot of different romantic arcs, often between the same people, is that all of the romances are based in friendship, and I don't feel like we do a good job of talking about romantic partners as friends, like, I think... In society, there's like this feeling that you have friends and then you have your romantic partner and that romantic love is something completely separate and apart from friend love. And so to then have like literally an entire cast of characters who are in friend love with each other, as well as some of them being in romantic love, is a really cool thing to see. Mm -hmm. Like that's the type of relationship I think I have. And I really appreciate having a story that's about friend love and romantic love at the same time. Yeah. It gives them a lot more material to work with, too. <laughs> For sure. Well, that's a way richer story than just, like, whatever, like, mass-produced, you know, normative television love is. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I'm not sure I've ever really been able to describe what it is, and I think that's why I've always hated rom-coms in particular so much and love stories so much. Because I'm not sure, like, what they are trying to describe. But yeah, like, that's fair. This is a type of relationship I understand. Yeah. And part of the way that they do this so effectively with the real relationship that they build is they juxtapose them with the, uh, they have sort of a regular arc and then a telenovela arc yeah. at the same time. <laughs> and so anything crazy that happens in the telenovela arc is able to like make anything that's outside of that seem so much more legitimate. Mm-hmm and important and real and it's obviously done well but it helps to have that craziness to balance it out yeah it's i've said this before about the show but like it's one of the few forms of fiction that has been able to harness absurdity to make its point like i think it's one of those things where it helps if you can set the bar high so in this case that high bar is absurdity levels so you set the level of absurdity high so that you believe reality. Yeah. And I also appreciate how much Matelio, as I will always call him, is <laughs> Jane's visible son. in this show. Yes. Especially in season three. Yeah. And so, so, so often a baby is like a plot device for when you get lazy. Yep. And because this show kicks off with that. They really work hard to make sure it's integrated in every single facet of the show all the time. Yes. Yeah. And it's little dumb mundane things like, can you watch Matelio? Yep. Can you pick him up? Yeah, it shows the parts of parenting where it's like the constant obligation. And not in a bitter way. 
No, 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 no. Just in the way that, like, this is a living creature that we are now responsible for keeping alive. Can someone, like, maybe be in charge of keeping him safe today? Yeah. I think the only thing that I find maybe a little unrealistic is the lack of financial concern that they often have. It comes up from time to time, depending on the story, but it's not overarchingly a burden for Jane to be able to afford her life. Well, the cop-out is that Raphael is rich. And so the implication is that Raphael is channeling a lot of money over. And you find that out, especially after Jane and Michael are married and they're trying to make their budget work. Yeah. So actually, sorry, if I can back up like a little bit. So this show does spend like a lot of time on socioeconomics. And it's because Jane grew up in a single parent home where her grandmother was a home caregiver and her mother was a dance instructor. And they struggled very much as Jane was growing up. So Jane's whole thing in adulthood and there's several different plot lines about this, is having economic anxiety, if I can use a 2016 buzzword. (laughs) Um, And Raphael, who is her baby daddy, owns this hotel and has generational wealth and has like thousands of trust funds and is literally a millionaire. And so it comes up in a lot of different ways that he has no economic anxiety and has never worried about money. Like the joke is made a lot that one of his hobbies is investment. And he Mm -hmm. likes to talk about his investment portfolio and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of different storylines that are sort of tied into juxtaposing those two people and their two economic realities, which is super interesting. Like, I am so here for stories about socioeconomic diversity. That's amazing. Anyway, to your point, it has also bothered me, though, because they do very conveniently sort of, especially in seasons two and three, gloss over the fact that Jane and Raphael are, for all intents and purposes, raising Matteo in separate homes. And so even if Raphael is sharing a lot of that financial burden, the economic reality in those two homes is still different. Yeah. And Jane works a lot of odd jobs and she's in and out of grad school. There's a long period where she's not working at all. Like, girl, what are your student loans? Yeah. And, like, girl would have student loans. Like, Raphael did not love her so much he was paying out her student debt. Mm-mm. Well, and she, so for a while she paid for grad school by doing a TA program, but then her mom sends a stripper to it and she gets kicked out. So then she's not paying for it with her, like, student teaching stipend. Right. It's all a little gray, but we forgive it. We forgive it. And for the most part, these are the types of plot holes we're talking about, right? Like, we're not talking about, like, legitimate plot holes because the storytelling is so legit. It's this so is the legit. kind of shit we have to focus on because the rest of the storytelling is so strong. It really is. <laughs> Which is rude. <laughs> Although you have one grape besides I do have one grape. grape. So as long as we're griping about the show before we, like, get back to waxing poetic about it. I thought by season three we would have resolved it, and we never have. But I cannot figure out what they're trying to do with Raphael. So I honestly feel like I had a better sense of him in season one than I do now. Because in season one, he's, like, really closed off and really, like, broody and solemn. Like, he's tall, dark, and handsome, and, like, I would emphasize the dark, as in, like, dark in mood. You know what I mean? And also, like, a Greek god. Just he is a Greek god. He is so he beautiful is. that it, like, I... I can't look directly into the television screen when he's on screen because it's like looking at a solar eclipse. Um, (laughs) My thirst is a little strong at any rate. So yeah, he's like very broody and very quiet and solemn. And then like, so there's, there's this fluctuating storyline where for a while he's on again, off again in love with Jane. 
which I have mixed feelings about, but that's a story for another day. And somewhere in the phase where she's, she like temporarily breaks up with Michael. And somewhere in that phase, they're like kind of starting to get together and suddenly he's really smiley and he's like very sweet and handsy. And like, not that sweet isn't built into his personality, but he kind of, it like, like I remember the first couple times he smiled during that period of time. And I was like, you don't smile though. And it yeah. wasn't played in such a way that it was like, she's changed him or this is who he is deep down inside and she's just uncovering that. It was like flip of a switch. Mm-hmm. And then he flips back and forth through that. And like, I just feel like they sort of swing him around and make him whoever they want him to be, depending on the plot. I had a lot of hope at the beginning of season three that they'd finally figured him out because he was so much fun. Yeah, and it was basically, like, he was free from a lot of family burdens at that moment. Yep. Uh, and, like, legal <laughs> burdens. And he yeah. he and Jane basically had decided they were definitely friends and they were partners. And because neither of them had feelings for each other, they could finally actually kind of take each other on in a real way, but also in a funny way. Yep. Which was the strongest storyline between the two of them, by the way. It was. And he finally had, like, something to say, and he had an attitude that was funny and all his own. They've preserved some of that, I think, through the end of season three, but he's still all over the place. I think times when it was weak was, like, every once in a while, so there's this constant back and forth with different investigations in the Marbella, and no matter what happens, Raphael always ends up at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Which is, like, fine. It's a trope I can deal with. But they started getting more and more entrenched in this trope where, like, as soon as a new investigation is opened, he's, like, cross-armed and, like, you know, like, almost childish when an investigation is open. Like, he has to say snarky stuff and, like, be quippy with the cops. And be like, I just have so much on my mind. Yeah, it's like emo Raphael. And (laughs) it's hard... It's hard for me to say one way or another if I think that that's a legitimate characterization because they've swung so dramatically between these, like, different parts of Raphael that, like, it just, it feels like a caricature. And it stands out dramatically because all of the other characters are really consistent and make a lot of sense. Yes. And it's not to say the show doesn't dramatize characters from time to time. Like, the show blows shit out of proportion on the regs. It's just that it usually does it in a way that, like, makes sense And I just don't think they ever fully figured out what to do with Raphael. I know more about, like, Scott than I do about Raphael. Exactly! I know more about Louisa than Mm -hmm. Raphael. Yeah, and it's tough, too, because, like, Raphael is supposed to be one of the driving forces of Jane's life and Jane's realizations. And so to have him be so inconsistent is something that's, like, upsetting to me. It doesn't detract from the show at all. Like, you know, as we were joking about the cash flow plot hole. It's a nitpicky thing because the storytelling is so strong. And to that point, they do a lot of really impressive storytelling with Raphael in season three and the end of season two with his family, Mm -hmm. particularly when he finds out that he was adopted and suddenly realizes why he was always inadequate in his father's eyes. Yeah. I wasn't adopted, but there are some parallels in my family And (laughs) um, so, you know, add it to the list of ways in which Jane the Virgin accidentally told my life story. But they told that part of the story so fucking well. They did. 
Another story on a different note, but I know you wanted to talk about Alba. Oh, Alba. One thing about her stories, if she's Jane's grandma, one thing that I appreciate that they've done with her over time is they don't make her like a quaint old grandma. (laughs) You know, she has her beliefs and she's the one who sort of pushed the Catholicism and virginity on Jane a lot, which they talk about a lot. Um, and how that affected her, but they talk about Alba, and they talk about who she has a crush on as a, what, like, 65-year-old lady? Yes, I love that plot line, because I think, like, as a society, we're so bad at treating people above a certain age as being human. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole thing with Alba about the fact that she was married to a man she adored, like, the great love of her life, and he died, and so she's essentially been in mourning all this time. And now suddenly she has a crush. And it's like, it's not just telling, like, that love story. It's telling the the broad arc of Alba's life. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I love her. And the timing can't go unnoticed with the fact no. that it doesn't happen until... So we're going to recognize this in a minute. Oh, I don't want to do it! <laughs> I'm not... We're not going to linger on it at this moment. We're going to get to it in a minute. But in season three, Michael dies. Spoilers, spoilers. I'm... Yeah, it's fine. I'll put it in the show notes. All right. So Michael dies, and then they do a three-year jump, which is fucking bold, but thank the Lord above that they did. Mm-hmm. And it's during this three-year jump that Alba has a crush, or discovers her crush, and then eventually starts dating him. And I feel like it cannot go unnoticed, that because she worked in the gift shop before the three-year jump, right? Yep. Right, so she worked with the guy that she has a crush on before the three-year jump. But it cannot go unnoticed that she didn't develop the crush and start dating him until afterwards. And this is during the same period that Jane has lost Michael and is still grieving and trying to understand what life looks like after him. Yeah. So it's like this fucking show just knows what they're doing all the fucking time. They really fuck with my feelings. So badly. So we've talked on the podcast before about the fact that I don't cry when I watch media, like when I watch movies or television, even though I'm a crier in real life. And then the episode where Michael dies happened. And I, it was at like two in the morning. I was up late doing work, watching this episode. I sat on my living room floor and sobbed audibly, like ugly crying for another 20 Mm -hmm. minutes. And then every single episode for the rest of the season made me cry. (laughs) Some more Mm -hmm. than others. But every single episode made me cry after that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I cry when I watch TV shows and movies like fairly frequently, but I like, which is hilarious because you are not a crier. I'm not a crier at all. I, I get emotional about a lot of things, but they're like happy things mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. heartwarming things. And I didn't even realize that that was what it is until Michael died and then I cried sadness cries (laughs) and I was like what is happening to me like I don't think I've had that reaction in my life to anything yeah ever yeah it's and it it wasn't even that that episode was was a little bit but the episode right after is the one that destroyed me yeah the episode right after is tough well what's hard is it's like a three episode saga that deals with like the acute fallout So it starts Mm -hmm. with 
I mean, the show had been foreshadowing that Michael would die since the beginning. He's a cop. He's involved in investigating this drug cartel. He's injured multiple times. Like, And the narrator does some work. And the narrator has been planting the seed for a long time. And the narrator gets really heavy-handed with it a couple of episodes before it happens. But in the front half of season three, there's this whole plot. So Michael gets shot on their wedding night. So, like... They're in the hotel room on the wedding night, and they are about to have sex for the first time. Jane is still a virgin Mm -hmm. at this point. And Michael goes out to get ice, and he sees the drug lord he's been chasing after, and she shoots him. Yeah. And then Jane comes out in a bathrobe to try to figure out why it's taking him so long to get ice, and she sees him laying on the hotel floor bleeding out. Um, And that's that's how we end season two and open season three. Yeah. So Michael doesn't die that night. And so the front half of the season is him recovering from the injury. And during this time, he is still working towards getting back to physical fitness to a point where he can rejoin the force mm-hmm. because the investigation's not over. Like, And he's poured the majority of his career into investigating this cartel. And so during this time, Jane has already tried to convince him to leave the force because it's like his second brush with death. And he doesn't want to, and then he doesn't pass his physical, so he can't go back to the force, so then he decides to become a lawyer. And Jane is so excited because he's not going back onto the line of duty. Like, he's not going to be in danger anymore. Mm -hmm. And then he dies while taking the LSAT. He has a heart attack or an aortic dissection and dies. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's so much buildup to all of that. And then the episode before they recreate their first date... And I read a recap. I'm, I actually knew this was coming the entire season. I was on Twitter the day after the episode that he dies aired. And Catherine Van Arendonk, our favorite vulture writer, posted a recap. And for some reason, I hadn't read any that season. For some reason, that one looked compelling. And that's how I found out. And thank the Lord above I knew this was coming because I don't think I could have picked up the pieces if I didn't know. I had seen like one word And I hoped and hoped and hoped it wasn't true, but I was slightly prepared. And Well, I knew because I knew the plot of the episode before. Like, I knew when it was going to come because of timing. Yeah. So, I I mean, what was hard is I spent the whole front half of the season, like, waiting for that episode. But then they go to the carnival, and I was like, okay, okay, here we are. It's going to happen. Yeah, and I remember I was watching that, and I texted you, and I said, this show's making me really nervous, and I don't want to say why, because I don't want it to be real. And then within yeah. minutes, it happened. Within minutes, it escalates so quickly. And so her whole take on it is that that's their chance to say goodbye. And it's true. And the narrator makes it true. Like, the narrator tells that story. And that is their last night together. Like, they say goodbye, And then Michael wakes up the next morning and he goes to take the LSAT and he dies in the classroom. And then they do this really rude, inappropriate thing where um, where Jane gets the phone call. And I'm going to skip the rest of that scene (laughs) Um, because I don't think I can talk about it. But then they open the next episode recapping that. And then they cut to the time jump. So that's when you're introduced to the fact that we're not going to talk about Jane three years later. And I think that the time jump, it was such a, the right move. It was the right move. I don't think that they could have told that story in the acute crisis, like in the days after Michael dying and have done any amount of justice to it. No. The thing about what they do in the back half of the season is that 
grief is such a nebulous thing and it's such a big and heavy thing Yeah, that to try to talk about it in the moments afterwards is, I think in some ways, often like fairly disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And not that it's not compelling to talk about acute grief or like acute loss, but I think in some ways the story that we don't tell is grief over time. Mm-hmm. And so what the time jump allowed them to do was like separate themselves from that moment, but still be able to talk about the way in which that loss has felt, mm-hmm. which they did. Like a- Rogelio. Oh my God. Ro- the, some of the best storytelling they did this season, season three, was Rogelio and Michael because they were Brohelios. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael was Rogelio's best friend. They would go get pedicures together and talk about life. And Michael helped Rogelio connect with Jane and he gave him relationship advice for Zoe. And they do a really good job of being able to tell the story of, I, I can't remember who said this, another recapper said it, it's not an original thought, but the hole that's left by losing mm-hmm. someone, by showing Rogelio trying to process that with Raphael. <laughs> yeah. And I think the whole story of how Rogelio and Zoe are getting married, right? And how they yep. sort of are very sensitive towards Jane about their wedding. Yeah. And they say, oh, we don't want a big thing because we don't want you to be reminded of your wedding. Right. And and the hilarious thing there, which I also think is like a very fair story to tell, is Jane being like, are you guys fucking crazy? Have a wedding. Like, right. What are you doing? Right. I also get super emotional about Zoe and Rogelio's wedding and about the ceremony that Jane leads for them. Oh, I know. <laughs> I watched it last night and it's too raw. <laughs> that, I mean, that gave me so many feelings. <laughs> I, I also even. had feelings when Jane said, because she, she spends a lot of season three saying like, well, I already had my fairy tale. Yeah. And then towards the end of season three, she's like, well, I hope I get it again. Yeah. Well, and season three is interesting, too, because all along we've been talking about Jane's obsession with fate. And so Mm -hmm. the reason that Jane loves romance novels and wants to be a romance writer and why the show format is telenovela and with a focus on romance is because of fate, which honestly is why Michael's death gets to me so much, because he didn't die on the force. Right. (laughs) He died once he was off duty. And that feels like fate. And that feels like fate coming back and biting Jane in the ass. Yeah. But we spend the entire series talking about the fact that Jane believes in fate and the narrator harps on this all along. But then the message at the back half of the season is about choice versus fate. And that's what her ceremony about Roe and Zoe is, is she starts off saying, like, these people aren't here because of, like, fate. And everyone gets really stressed out. And then she starts talking about all of the choice that's involved in commitment. Mm-hmm. Are you crying? No, I just, <laughs> that's one of those things that I feel like speaks for itself. Like, I don't think I can do justice to that message. No. But it's also, like, the thing I believe in the most. Like, I think, like, the most romantic thing is in life is commitment <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. making the choice to love someone. Um, that wasn't my voice cracking. I just had a frog in my throat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... So I, like, the fact that they actually, like, wrote a script and then had an actor deliver the words that says that, like, choice and commitment are the most important foundations of love was unbelievably powerful to me. Mm-hmm. We're getting so deep. It's a lot. <laughs> I cried, like, seven times last night watching the last two episodes. 
Oh my God, the last two episodes. And I want to be super clear too. It's not like the back half of the season is doom and gloom and tears. Like Mm -mm. the back half of the season, there's a couple of episodes in the middle that are kind of heavy and they have to be. That's absolutely necessary. But the back half of the season is super fun and silly Mm -hmm. and hilarious. Like some of the funniest writing they have ever done is in that back half. Yes. Like, you were really upset, and I'll give you some time to rant about it, about Jane having a fling with Fabian. Yeah. But some of the funniest physical comedy and situational comedy they've ever done on the show is her trying to avoid avoid Fabian. Yes. It it was good. It was worth it. I thought that was I being set up for it. a lot longer of an arc than it was. No. So, so I forgave it. So, post-Michael, Rogelio gets a gig on a new telenovela. And he has this super hot new co-star who's much younger and hotter than he is. And so, like, you're setting up Roe for a whole thing, which is great. It's one of my favorite storylines <laughs> because Roe's narcissism, narcissism is, in, like, enchanting. Oh, and then so good. <laughs> and then Jane has, like, wicked thirst for this guy because he's beautiful. But Raphael's beautifuler. Oh, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, he's better than Raphael. Yeah, okay. Raphael is hot. I'm just saying that he also happens to be beautiful. They cast Raphael got, like, ten times hotter today because he posted a sponsored Target ad (laughs) on his Instagram that was, like, (laughs) A, the best influencer marketing I've ever seen, and B, just wonderful. All Kelsey's looking for in a life partner is someone who shops at Target. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Um, so Jane, Jane has the hots for Rose's new co-star and they start to have a fling and Fabian is like obsessed with her and she's just looking for casual sex. And part of the thing for her is like, she waited her entire life to have sex. She did everything right. She got married first. She had sex with Michael. Michael was the great love of her life and now Michael's dead. And she's like, well, now what? (laughs) (laughs) So she decides to have this fling with Fabian And it's going to be great. There's going to be no strings attached. It's just going to be hot sex. It's going to be wonderful. And then Fabian is, like, super clingy with her. And then he accuses her of using him. And it's, like, a whole thing. And it's fucking hysterical. It's so funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Fabian is, like, an incredible character. He's some of the best comedic relief. He is. I'll give you that. Yeah. One thing that did keep... I guess being a question for me, and maybe because it's such a trope that you see and I didn't see it, is that I didn't think that she would have stopped wearing her wedding ring at that point in time by the time jump in season three. It's hard to know. I like, I'm with you. You know how it's always like such a scene in things, and maybe that's why they didn't show it. I'm sure that's probably why they didn't show it, but I don't know. It was just like, it seemed with where she was at, like that would have been maybe, at least at the beginning, like not something she would have done yet. Right, right. So the time jump is three years, and there's a lot of grief we don't see in between. So, I mean, to your point, it is hard to know, but when we start the back half of the season, she is still in, like, a pretty raw and vulnerable place in her, I don't want to say recovery, but her process, I guess, Mm -hmm. for lack of, like, a better way to really phrase that. So to your point, like, maybe she is still attached enough, like, they show her looking at pictures of the two of them all the time, and, like, She's having a lot of panic attacks and having to go to therapy and a lot of stuff is still happening for her. So you might be right. I like part of me wonders if, especially given like the panic attack storyline, if that was supposed to represent that she's like trying to force herself to move on, Mm. you know, like she's doing arbitrary things to try to move on, but 
they're not the things that actually help her deal with the grief that she's going through. Sure. I don't know. And I mean, to be like frank and maybe weird without like having become a widow, like I don't know how to measure that. No, no. (laughs) So like, it just seems like it would have been a big moment for her. I also wonder, though, if for the sake of the writers, like, that's a difficult thing to delineate. You know, like, how do you write a scene where, like, someone takes off their wedding ring for good? I've seen it, like, a hundred times. Yeah, and was it as effective as the writing on Jane the Virgin? No, okay. Okay. Point taken. taken. (laughs) Come at me, bro. On that note, though, one of the things that we talked about earlier in our planning call, because we're (laughs) so organized, guys. We're such professionals. um, we were talking about how this is maybe the first show for me and for you mm-hmm. that we feel 100% confident in the direction that the writers are going and yep. feel so secure in everything they do. Even like my favorite shows of all time, like Parks and Rec, I always thought they could totally jump the shark and ruin my life. Arrested Development maybe jumped the shark and ruined my life. Friday Night Lights had season two, right? So. This is truly one of the, probably the first show that I have full faith in the writers for. And we were talking about this in the show in general, for sure, but uh, particularly in getting to the end of season three and not feeling the need to speculate what's coming in season four. Mm-hmm. So season four is coming back in the fall. Like, it's going to be on in September. Oh, you know when shows but, run? Yeah, I know some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not completely useless. <laughs> I'm um, just kidding. Um, but, like, neither of us really, like, feel the need to speculate on what they're going to do for story in season four. And, like, one thing that's really challenging with the show is that it's a full, like, 22-season order, but the episodes are, like, you know, full hours of 40 minutes with ads. But it's a long fucking season Mm -hmm. for a network show. And so there's a lot of storytelling to come in season four. And I said this to Kelsey on the phone, too. Like, in some ways, I feel like they could have ended season three and I would be happy. Like, there are some plots that aren't resolved, but so many things are in a good place that it would be fine. But I felt that way at the end of season one and I felt that way at the end of season two and I feel that way at the end of season three. And I am not concerned about what story they're going to tell me in season four, especially given where we ended. Yeah. And I think there's so many shows, cough, 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 that rely heavily on (laughs) plot, right? Yeah. And being shocking with the plot and having a lot of things happen with the plot. And even though the show has more plots happening at any given time than even Game of Thrones, (laughs) it's it's about character development. Yeah. And it's about relationships and it's not about plot. Well, and the plots are all connected. So even the absurd stuff happening at the Marbella, like the crazy murder mysteries and Petra's evil twin and like things that seem like they are not part of legitimate storytelling actually are part of the legitimate character development and Mm -hmm. relationship development. And so there's no plot holes. Like everybody, every character is connected and important to each other. And the absurd stuff is used to drive the real stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Like, you can't have one without the other, which the fact that they were able to do that is, like, mind-boggling. But it's not, like, as you were saying, it's not plot for the sake of plot. Like, they're not Mm -hmm. just trying to make shit up so that they have a reason 
for Varys to travel from Dorne to uh, whatever not Westeros is and back to Dorne and then teleport onto a ship back to Westeros. You know, like, they're not trying to make shit up just for the sake of having a story to tell. It all comes from, like, what is the story we're trying to tell? And then, like, what gaffes can we throw in to help that move along? We had a cartel leader in a submarine (laughs) circling an island. (laughs) For months. And it was on purpose and it made sense yeah she has she's in love with Raphael's sister and she convinced the sister to come to the submarine and the sister couldn't decide what to do about her life so they just circled the great barrier reef for like six months (laughs) until they could make a decision Mm -hmm. and it was a legitimate love story it was it was fucking show oh So I know we're having to sacrifice a lot of content here. There's a lot of stuff I feel like we haven't gotten to. But I also want to be clear that in this whole time, we've mostly only talked about, like, things centered around Jane. There's a couple other people I want to get to besides the people connected to Jane. So in particular, just so I make sure we get to her, I want to talk about Petra. Please talk about Petra. So Petra in season one is Raphael's wife. And she is the woman who was supposed to get inseminated instead of Jane. So Petra's in one room. Jane is in the other. Jane is there for a pap smear. Petra is there to get inseminated with Raphael's sperm. Raphael had had cancer. So right before radiation, he gave away a sperm sample so that at some point they could have children because he wouldn't be able to after chemo, whatever. Mm-hmm. But Jane's gynecologist, who happened to be Raphael's sister, was in the middle of a breakup with the drug cartel lord in the submarine that we just referenced. And she's also an alcoholic and was a hot mess and so accidentally inseminated Jane. So that's how Petra is in the mix. And Petra is, like, possibly the single most complicated character I have ever encountered in fiction. Yes. And, like, she's so consistent, And has the best clothes. And has the best clothes. And, like, the best sass. Mm -hmm. And, God, I I don't even know how to begin unpacking Petra. So one of the most powerful things, and I've already said this about the show, so that tells you what the league we're playing in is like. But one of the most powerful things I've seen in storytelling is there's a period of time. So Petra has an evil twin, bottom line. The evil twin shows up on the whim of Petra's mother. It's all part of an evil scheme. Long story short, the evil twin paralyzes Petra through medication and then steals Petra's identity. And this is after Petra has already had twins and is like good friends with Raphael and friends with Jane and has taken over shares of the Marbella. So like things are going pretty well for Petra at this point. And so anyway, Aneska, her sister, paralyzes her and then, like, steals her identity and her life. And so Petra, for a series of months, is laying in bed watching all of these things happen. And then, again, long story short, she escapes the paralyzation and gets her life back um, and throws Aneska in jail. And then there's a period of time after that where she is deeply traumatized. Mm Mm-hmm. And people in her life keep gaslighting her, including Raphael, which is, like, pretty shitty. But people keep gaslighting her into thinking that her paranoia is unfounded. But obviously she's paranoid. Like, Mm -hmm. she was just put in a coma, or not a coma, but, like, a vegetative state for months. And then watched as, like, another person took care of her children and, like, ruined her business and, like, did all this stuff. 
So there's a scene where Petra assumes Aneska's identity and goes to meet with someone to prove that everything is a conspiracy against Petra. And she gets the evidence that she needs, and then she goes back to a car. And at this point, as the audience, you don't know that it's Petra. And she gets in the car, and she rips off the Aneska wig and starts sobbing and, like, slamming her hand against the steering wheel because she realizes everything Raphael has been saying is a lie. Yeah. And then there's... And this is all in the midst of a really funny Americans joke that they drop in between them. (laughs) Making so many jokes about the Americans. That's how many levels they're working on. (laughs) Because the narrator knows this all along, right? So he keeps, like, making these great jokes. Because, again, like, we keep talking about it as if the season is heavy. The season is fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, it, like, the actress that plays Petra, I can't remember her name, she is so skilled and so nuanced. And, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't have enough adjectives to, like, describe everything she's doing. She does things with her face that I don't even think I can do with my own face as a normal human. Well, she's, like, stone-faced at all times, and then also giving away these little hints of whatever else is going on. Yeah. I think in relation to that, the other thing that they did well with the storytelling, with the repercussions of her being paralyzed, was her figuring out how to be a parent. Oh, absolutely. And, like, bonding with her children when they didn't really know who she was. Well, so one of the things is when Petra first has the twins. So first, it all gets off on a bad foot. She finds out that there was another sample of sperm that neither she nor Raphael really knew about. So she steals it and she inseminates herself with a turkey baster because she's trying to get Raphael back. And like one of the like most comedic camera shots I've ever seen is her laying on the couch (laughs) upside down with her feet in the air. Like it's such a funny camera angle. Anyway, um, so she gets pregnant with twins, and after the twins are born, she has uh, postpartum depression, and she feels competitive with Jane because Mateo at that point is not that much older than the twins, and so she feels like Jane is this perfect mother, and Raphael loves Mateo more. There's a whole thing where she finds out that Mateo has more inheritance than the twins do, and so on and so forth. It becomes competitive for a little while. And so Petra already got off to a rough start as a parent, but Aneska, her evil twin, you know, shows up out of nowhere from the Czech Republic and the twins adore her. And then she gets paralyzed and Aneska takes over and the twins bond like in a child parent way with Aneska and not Petra. And then Petra, on top of being an insecure parent, now has to deal with this really bizarre quagmire of having an evil twin stealing her children's affection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she, casual. in season three, super casual, there's a lot of storytelling in season three about, like, child rearing, child care, and parenting that I appreciate on both a personal and professional level. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because this is the world that I live in. Like, I work in childcare and have worked with children for most of my career. So it's, like, all very familiar stuff to me. But but Petra then goes on to be, like, super parent. So all of the kids, all three of the kids go to this, like, super fancy rich kid preschool where Petra is, like, classroom mom. Yeah. And then Jane becomes insecure about Petra's parenting. And they have this really cute scene where Jane, is it Jane who starts it? One of them says, like, after this prolonged fight, like, oh, I was just insecure because you're a perfect parent. And one of them's like, yeah, I've been waiting, like, years to tell you that that's ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> and then they like fight over who's more insecure about whose parenting skill. Yep. Anyway. Anyway. The bottom line is that Petra has a really complicated storyline. But it's so good. I've said to Kelsey before, and every time I end up interrupting myself, I think that Petra and the actress who plays her has the heaviest lift on the show. Because she's not yeah. only playing herself, but she's playing her twin. And then at times she's like playing her twin playing herself or playing herself playing her twin. Or... It's super you know, parent trappy. Extrapolate from there. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I think... I think, like, she's pulling more weight than the rest of the cast. And then every time I start to say that, I think, like, oh, but think about what Gina Rodriguez is trying to do. And <laughs> I spend most of my time waffling about who the greatest gift is on this show. It's hard to know. It's hard to know, but it's maybe Rogelio. Yeah, we haven't talked about Rogelio at all. And, like, as one of the few men on this show, I feel like he deserves a little bit of time. <laughs> Define a little. We're at 142. <laughs> this show is just so rich. It is rich. The thing I love most about Rogelia, if I can summarize him, is that he's portrayed as like a vapid narcissist, and yet he's one of like the deepest speakers of truth on this show. Like he's the character who will like drop a truth bomb, like a feeling bomb, and then leave. <laughs> yeah. And he's also like... As much as he's selfish, he's also very selfless at times. Oh, extremely. Well, like, so when he and Jane first meet, he's doing a lot of, like, grand gestures, like buying her cars and doing things that Jane feels are very inappropriate. And she tries to make the argument to him, like, this is all about you trying to prove a point because you're, like, rich and famous. Right. And Rogelio's like, yeah, maybe, except also let me counter that with all the feelings I have. Yeah. Like, they do a good job of, of saying, like, selfishness is sometimes just an inappropriate response to, like, a real feeling. Yeah. Oh, Jane the Virgin. <laughs> so, TLDR, watch the show if you haven't, uh, although we just gave away everything that happens. Not even close, it, girl. It is a gift to this world. Yeah. And we have more feelings. We'll talk more about it in many, many upcoming episodes, I promise. Yeah. I feel like I'm, like, trying to find one way to wrap it up, and I'm having a hard time, like, tying it up neatly, which I suppose is, like, the whole point. <laughs> Since wrapping this up is too difficult for you, Kiersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you have your own Jane the Virgin feelings and want to chat about them, Kirstie's up for lengthy personal phone calls Infinite. and emails. You can email her and I guess me too at hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. <laughs> or you can tweet us your favorite Jane the Virgin gifts at hatewatchwithus. And we'd really appreciate it because it would be fun. Yeah, there's lots more to talk about, lots more to say. Get hyped for season four, which is coming back, and we will talk about it again, I'm quite sure. Lastly, if you are looking for more from us, which if you managed to stick in this episode this long, I'm assuming you are, you can find additional content at our website, hatewatchwithus.tumblr.com, um, which has a whole bunch of stuff. And you can tune in for our Game of Thrones bind-offs every week for the next few weeks. Bind-offs are coming every Sunday. Except for two. <laughs> Except for two Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> That should actually just be our promo for right <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Oh, oh lordy. All right. Well, All right. thanks well, guys. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Give me breakfast pizza.